0: But at the end of the day, people get booked for all kinds of dumb reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe you did get staged on because you're Indian. But the other guy got stage on because he drank with the guy. So, yeah. like, who cares? <laughs> like, go be funny. And as long as you go on stage and be funny, that should be mm-hmm. all that matters.
1: Hello and welcome to episode six of Welcome to the Stage. I'm excited about this episode because we're doing a little something different. My guest today is not only a stand-up comedian, but he is also Boom Chicago's newest cast member. He's here today to talk about his time performing around the world. We're talking New York, L.A., London, San Francisco, and now Amsterdam. He also gives us some insight about what law school taught him about comedy, as well as what he thinks about the Amsterdam scene. So please, welcome to the stage, Sid Singh
0: maybe as the lights fade up on the stage they think oh this must be the start then maybe they start applauding just gently at first and then building it up and then when the music comes in they start going wild and crazy it's
1: <laughs> like famous people coming up to you and saying, man, you inspire me.
0: <laughs> that was not what happened. Yeah. What happened was is he was like, hey, man, it was a fun show. We, me and uh, his girlfriend enjoyed my set. And, it, you know, one of the best parts about comedy is not just the performing, which is awesome, but like afterwards where you have this sort of built-in community of comedians. And one of the most interesting things about comedy is that there are going to be times when you are on a show with two comedians who you have nothing in common with. Yeah. Their styles are different. Their attitudes towards comedy are different. And then all three of you still have a terrible gig. <laughs> and then after the gig, you guys are just like bonding over that experience. And that's just the magic of comedy. It's just such, mm-hmm. such a weird community that has so many issues. But at its yeah. best can, can truly be something magical.
1: Where was that show that you met? Was that in, in London? It was in London. Yeah, 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 yeah. How long did you live there for? Because I heard you talk about it on your other podcast.
0: I lived in London for four months. Oh. Uh, a couple of years before that, I studied at Oxford for this uh, law, law class, basically.
1: Wow. Oxford. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Very College. Yeah, 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 yeah. My sister studied at Oxford, too, actually. Yeah. She loved it. It,
0: uh, yeah, it was nice. Yeah. It's nice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: I heard again. Uh, I did. I did some research. I googled your name, and this was the first <laughs> result. Uh, Sid Singh is president of U.S. Info Solutions, a 1.3 billion dollar revenue business mm-hmm. that provides data analytics and technologies. I had no idea you were so well off.
0: Yeah, you know, when I uh, paid you a million dollars to have me on this podcast, mm-hmm. I. Knew that it was a drop in the bucket for me. So what? A big, I was surprised,
1: a but only slightly. Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. I, I don't think. I, I, I think. I think right now I might be in the top five to ten Sid Sings that come up when you Google Sid Sing.
1: You were. You were fourth.
0: Yeah. So oh, man, not bad. That's
1: not bad. No, that's not bad.
0: Uh, I think that'll be short lived. <laughs> <laughs> I think as more and more Sid Sings have access to the internet. Uh, I will be slipping further and further down those rankings.
1: Well, I found your website, and I was impressed. Oh, thank I
0: you. mean
1: listeners uh normally, the people that I have on my podcast are people that I've known in the Amsterdam scene for months years uh however, Sid is a new uh student of comedy here in Amsterdam, though he's old and has been around, so he should be a teacher t a let's say that okay. um. Yeah, you just moved here a couple months ago.
0: Yeah, January. Yeah. 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 Or How, I guess technically February.
1: And uh not only are you the newest comedian to the Amsterdam Zoom, you're also the first improver I've had on. Oh wow. Yeah, so I'm expecting a lot of funny quips from you today.
0: Nah, man, I'm good. Set the bar high.
1: <laughs> yeah, that that's pretty. You work at uh, Boom Chicago. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's how's why, it going? It is the only reason I would move to Amsterdam. Really? Yeah, I I am a big believer. And if you're not challenging yourself artistically in the city that you're in, you need to get out because there are cities that will challenge you artistically. Mm -hmm. Uh, Amsterdam has a lot of amazing things going for it. Uh, I really love walking around the city. Everything is so beautiful, especially now that it's getting to be the spring.
1: Yeah, thank God.
0: But um, I think if you're a serious comedian, you have to live in London, New York or L.A. for for a decent amount of time. Mm -hmm. And then eventually you can move, you know, like Nate Bargazzi, I think, lives in south somewhere and sort of commutes when he has to. Uh, but I think when you're still trying to learn and get better and better, you need to be around people who are amazing.
1: I heard a uh, similar but different advice from a couple of traveling comedians who were in Amsterdam from L.A. And their advice to me was, OK, you're living somewhere. Work until you're the best in that small place mm-hmm. and then move somewhere else. Because sure. they said that a lot of people seem to burn out like uh, they start comedy as soon as they move to L.A. instead of just working at it where they are and then seeing wait waiting until they're at the top of their game mm-hmm. before moving?
0: Uh, it goes both ways. I think you can benefit a lot from starting in a city that's not those three. But I think the idea of waiting until you're the best in that city is also... I think after a year, if you're pushing yourself to get up five times a week or however much your city will allow for, um, you, you're ready to move. Mm-hmm. Just because... So, so based on my own experience, I started in San Diego. Uh, I started off getting up twice a week, which was the most I could do because I was living not in San Diego, but I was driving <laughs> the hour and a half each way to San Diego. Where to were you do living like, back? Then? Uh, Riverside, which is in Southern mm-hmm. California as well, but uh, far from L.A. and San Diego. Okay. And I would drive. I would so sort of drive an hour and a half after class on Friday to do five minutes on a show then sleep on my friend's couch until Sunday night when I would do three minutes at the La Jolla Comedy Store. And then I would drive an hour and a half back to college.
1: That's dedication. Uh, yeah, I mean, to, to
0: comedy is just, that, that's the magic of comedy, though, is that mm-hmm. it, it sort of brings that out of you. Um, but I think after a year, I'm glad I moved when I did.
1: You moved to L.A.?
0: I moved to New York, much oh, weirder. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. I, How old were you? I was 21 or 20. Uh, I, when I moved to New York, I was 22, I want to say.
1: And you started doing stand-up when you were 21 then? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah? Uh, yeah, a little bit before 21. So I'm 30 now. I've been doing it 10 years. So yeah, I guess. Wow, man. Um, but it was it was a thing where uh, you just get so much better so fast in New York because you're getting up three to four times a week. You can write as much as you want. I think you should try to write as much as you can, but... Nothing makes you better than stage time Mm and nothing makes you better than good stage time and having access to both is critical. So one of the good things about starting in a small city is you probably have quicker access to good stage time, which is, you know, a stage that gives you 10 or more minutes, eight or more minutes in front of real people.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Which is a
0: big deal because you move to L.A. and New York and suddenly those spaces are so competitive to get into, that you start performing a lot more to other comedians at open mics.
1: Oh, I thought you were going to say fake people. Yeah, <laughs> just AI, That that's what fills the stages of New York. Uh,
0: I, I think even that would be better than performing to <laughs> jaded comedians in New York and L.A., which you go and deal with a lot. And, but, and yet still, learning how to make yourself be able to get laughs in those rooms um, helps you get the chops required that once you start getting into those good rooms, you're just a better, quicker comedian.
1: How long did it take you to sort of, once you got to New York, you Mm -hmm. know, to move up into a level that wasn't uh, full of fake people or comedians? (laughs) Comedians. It's pretty synonymous. Well, so New York has a
0: couple ways to get around certain things like that. And unfortunately, a lot of it requires uh, paying for open mics and stuff like that. That's
1: what I, when I visited New York, Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I've only ever performed in Amsterdam. I was so surprised to see that all the open mics you have to pay just to get on the lineup.
0: So that is a misnomer. Um, a lot of the mics in Manhattan require you to pay mm-hmm. to get up. In Brooklyn and Queens, they're free. And there are better comedians in those open mics because they are they're comedians who are a little bit riskier, a little bit more alternative, a little more interesting. That's not to say that they're better than uh, Manhattan consistently. They're, you know, there are a lot of comics in Manhattan who will start off and they will pay for mics. And they will have just a really good classic set of punchline, set up punchline. Um... But I, I think the best answer is to do a mix of both, because you know ultimately, if you're performing 20 times a week, you're going to see the same people over and over again. And if you want to be able to make them laugh, you need to keep churning out new material. That's the best thing mm-hmm. about being in New York and, and L.A. to a slightly lesser extent, is the sort of desire to constantly perform and and create new stuff that I think smaller cities... Don't have because you're not performing as much. You're not comfortable enough with your old stuff to move on to new stuff.
1: You're sort of still trying to perfect what you have without having that existing challenge mm-hmm. of forced creativity.
0: Uh, that's why I think those Comedy Embassy guys
1: um Oh, yeah. Po- Polly, Core, and mm-hmm. uh, Tim.
0: Yeah. I think they have such a great opportunity because they do shows Wednesday to Sunday or, or Sunday mm-hmm. Wednesday. Was it Thursday to Monday or Tuesday? Something, something like, like
1: that. Something like that. Yeah, it's changing up a little bit. I think right yeah. now, but yeah,
0: the, the kind of thing where they're guaranteed, you know, four to five decent spots in front of an audience every single mm-hmm. day, and that'll just get you so much better. Yeah. The only thing is that y- you still need to get up. You know, the the thing that I think young comics are slow to realize. I know I was was that the more you perform in one specific venue, the more you're performing only to the audience that goes to that kind of venue, mm-hmm. and you're leaving yourself. Um, without the opportunity to learn how to get better at performing to different kinds of venues. That was a, that the yeah. other amazing thing about New York is it's such a small place with so many different kinds of audience members and venues that you can learn to get up at.
1: I don't think I've ever heard someone call New York a small place, but yeah, I suppose geographically it's not humongous.
0: And, and that's what I mean, is that uh, there are so many different scenes within an hour and a half of each other. There's the alt scene, there's the uh, club scene, there are all the black rooms, uh, uh, the Latino rooms. And I, I really, really, you know, if you're a young comic listening to this, you need to do all of them. You, there's, you know, despite the fact that they're called uh, black rooms or, or the Latino rooms, those are rooms that will welcome you. Go do stage time there and learn how to make that audience laugh.
1: I mean, you've done a couple jokes I've heard you do that address your racial ambiguity. <laughs> sure. So it's probably easy for you to fit into some of those niches.
0: Uh, yes and no. Because so many of like there are just rooms where like you know you if you're performing in Harlem in New York, um, hesitancy is what'll cause you to bomb. Mm.
1: Uh,
0: And it takes a while to learn that. It doesn't really matter what you look like—white, black, Asian, doesn't Latino, whatever. Like, are you hesitating? Because the fear—the moment you hesitate, they're gonna like that's fear. We don't respect that. Um, Whereas if you are in Queens. In Long Island City, at the Creek in the Cave, and you're just super aggressive, unless your jokes are very weird and silly, if you're doing, like, aggressive club comedy, the audience is going to look at you and be like, what are you doing, man? That's not... <laughs> so, it, you know, you got to learn how to be able to do mm-hmm. it in all these different rooms.
1: So, you're there, you're in New York City, mm-hmm. what, like, 22 years old? 22
0: then? to 25, yeah.
1: So, three years. Four, four years. Four, were, you, uh, were you studying? Yeah while you were there? No, I
0: was uh, working as a tech writer. So I'd write like Mm -hmm. guides and manuals. Were they funny? No, 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 no. I mean, it was very much grunt work of like, I mean, like really weird grunt work of of stuff like this big company just bought this small company and now they want to reformat all of the small company's guides and manuals to look like the guides and manuals of the large company. So it's like, you know, here's 10,000 pages for you to just like, Reformat and copy and paste and stuff like that. And the weirdest thing is, I look back and I'm like, I'm still not even that good at that. Like it's just like <laughs> I did that for so long, and I don't have any real tangible skills at it.
1: So, did you move to New York to do comedy, or, yes. or did you? Oh, so you didn't move there to pursue your your tech manual writing career? <laughs> no. Okay, no. just to be clear, that that dream died early on.
0: Uh, I was no, you know, to be fair, I was very lucky. That was a that was a job I got because my mother is a tech writer, and yeah. she would just throw me like. She was able to take on more work by ha- adding me on as a worker uh, and having me do that. And it was amazing because it was such a flexible job of like, as long as you do the eight hours, nine hours a day, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter when you do them. Because it'll often be like, here's a giant project and it just needs to be done by the end of the week. How you format that time is up to you.
1: That's good to have that freedom, especially in a career like comedy then.
0: It's so lucky. It's so lucky because, you know, you look at L.A. and I guess L.A. has some flexibility. So many comedians are Uber drivers now out <laughs> there. And I mean, it, it. it just provides them so much flexibility. But otherwise, like, you know, when I I lived in L.A., I worked for a law firm, and that was so structured and exhausting.
1: Yeah, because you were a law student.
0: Yeah, weirdly, I worked at a law firm and then went to law school.
1: Did you go to law school before New York, or?
0: I went to law school after New York. So I started in San Diego, did a year there, then did four years in New York, then weirdly got into law school, but went on, uh, I did my Second or third Edinburgh Fringe. Mm-hmm. I guess third. And it overlapped with my law school by one week. Like the start of law school with the end of the festival. Mm-hmm. So I was like, hey, is it all right if I show up a week late? And they were just like, no. <laughs> of course not. And I was like, oh, I ooh, okay. Um, well, what do we do there? And then they were like, well, you have to defer for a year. So I, was, I stayed accepted oh. into that law school and uh uh had a year to figure things out and I meant the whole time I was like oh, I just got to find something to get me out mm-hmm. of going to law school um but then I came back from that uh, uh Edinburgh fringe was back in New York and after a month I was like man uh, uh my my uh my job prospects had dried up <laughs> cuz once my parents were like you got into law school but then we're not going to help keep you away from going to law school we're not going to keep throwing you these uh uh gigs then um And I was like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. And they really wanted me to go to law school. And it was this thing of, I guess it's a very common story among Asian uh, kids and parents of just like, all right, I guess I got to do this for them. And I told myself San Francisco would be a decent comedy city. And it was in many ways. So after a year in L.A., I moved to L.A. from New York uh, to work at this law firm that I got a job at. And then I uh, moved to San Francisco for three years to do law school and comedy. And the weird thing is, is I only applied to law schools at... I don't want to say second tier comedy cities, but cities that were not L.A., New York and Chicago Mm -hmm. because they would allow you to uh, get up once or twice a day and still not let you you get up four or five times a day, which meant that Mm -hmm. you still had time to do law school.
1: So you're sort of restricting yourself a little bit. Yeah. And did you I mean, did you want to go to law school or was it sort of this ideal that your parents had set up for you? Yeah, it was
0: something they wanted. You're not like
1: uh, passionate about uh, torts?
0: <laughs> no, I'm never going to be passionate about <laughs> torts. Uh, well, you know, what was so interesting was I made the decision. And, you know, you make a decision. It is what it is. Now how can you make the best of it? And one thing I had going for me was because I had no real interest in becoming a lawyer. And because I had enough scholarships that I wasn't going to be, like, really in debt. Mm-hmm. Um. I had the flexibility to be like, well, what are the interesting classes? So I got to just take, just like try a bunch of different Mm -hmm. stuff because it didn't really matter. And so, you know, I could, because in my head, I was like, I'm still a comedian. Yeah. I'm in law school. I'm going to get this degree. Um, I can try, I can try corporate law. I tried a little bit of that. Uh, I can try state and local tax, which was super weird. I tried that one. Uh, Copyright law, which I thought was helpful for community. I took an entertainment Mm -hmm. law class. And then I took a lot of human rights classes, and those were the ones where I was like, oh, this is super interesting. Uh, I still can't, like, (laughs) excel at them because I'm not going to stop doing comedy every night, uh, which really eats into your reading for law school time. But it was fun, it was interesting, and I was able to... The, the best part about law school was getting to learn about all these amazing organizations and then try to combine them, which is to say, like, to run, throw comedy shows that would allow me to do 20-plus minutes if I wanted, but really serve as a fundraiser, where the show would... I would set it up with the organi- oh. organizer, where the show would be free, but then, you know, there'd be 50, 60, maybe even 110 people sometimes to come who would then buy drinks at the thing, and then they would donate, and then the money could go to the organizations.
1: That you'd learned about. That I learned of about through law school. school,
0: like the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies. Uh, La Raza was a big one uh the, the law school. um, The Black Law Students Association. Just getting to help these organizations and feel like that, it made me feel like it was more worthwhile. The cool thing about doing San Francisco comedy was, or the good and bad of it, the bad of it was, at that point, I had done comedy for six or seven years.
1: So you're like 28 then? Yeah, 20. I started
0: at 26. Well, right about mm-hmm. to turn 27. And uh, I, yeah, I had done comedy for f- six, six or seven, something like that. And it was a thing where I uh, had all these credits. I'd already done an hour. I um, had been passed at, as a regular into the, some clubs in New York. But San Francisco just didn't care. And they were very much like, I'm sorry, you haven't lived here long enough. You don't get to perform here. At, sh- at, like, all their big clubs.
1: Just because you hadn't earned your stripes there it, yet? Yeah, exactly. Even though you had external proof in New, mm-hmm. New York, it didn't matter to a San Francisco, Not in
0: the slightest. In fact, sometimes I would have my friends from New York come over and they would headline, mm-hmm. and they'd recommend me, and the club owner would be like,
1: oh, okay, yeah, maybe,
0: and then just would be like, no.
1: Was that tough? Did it sort of, like, hurt your spirits a little bit?
0: Oh, yeah. It was super demoralizing, and it was very much like, what am I doing here? Like, I would be... Requ- like, there's a Sunday showcase in San Francisco where you would have to just hang out for a year and then you get put on for your first open mic there. Mm-hmm. And I would mm-hmm. just watch my friends from L.A. and New York show up and because they were visiting, get up immediately. Gee. But because I, I had moved there, even though I had more credits than them, I would just have to mm-hmm. sit and wait. And so <laughs> I did this thing where I would bring my law school textbooks and be like, all right, I guess I'm going to do homework in the back <laughs> and like wait a year. And then suddenly um, uh, the bookers at the San Francisco Punchline, the club, were like, um, you're not here to read, you're here to learn.
1: Oh my god!
0: And I was like, cool, 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 cool.
1: But ultimately,
0: even that can be seen in some ways as a positive.
1: Mm-hmm. You got your homework done. Was
0: that. <laughs> no, I did not. <laughs> uh, I got some of it done. Um, I was very frequently the kid in law school who was just like a uh, like. I remember I was in constitutional law, and I was able to answer one question correctly, and then my professor followed up with a a, a follow up question. And my answer was pass. <laughs> and he just started laughing. He's like, you think this is a game show? Like, what? <laughs> and I was like, good point, good point Would pass. Um, and he laughed and he just moved on. Um, but but it, not getting up at those clubs was a good thing because it forced me to find new stage time. And it sort of mm. proved to myself that that's how much I love comedy, that I'm not going to let people telling me no stop me from doing it.
1: Do you think that that was, like, the most difficult period in your career after sort of, you know, obviously the beginnings in New York?
0: You know, it's so weird. It definitely has to be. And Mm -hmm. and what's so weird is, you know, in New York there were periods where, like, I lived outside. I was homeless for, like, a three-day stretch where I just, like, was outside with my suitcase just like, okay, now what do I do? (laughs) And I would still argue San Francisco was tougher Mm -hmm. because in New York— That panic forced me to become a better comedian uh, and just mature as a human. In San Francisco, it just felt like this thing of like, I'm not learning anything by you guys telling me no, Mm -hmm. other than I have to rely on myself to create stage time. And, you know, the one thing I would tell any young comic listening to this is you can build stage time. But even beyond that, like, just look for theaters that are new. Look for coffee shops that are looking for a slightly more audience. Look for bars that are like, um, yeah, we'll we'll consider putting on a night. And hit them up, and they will consider it if you can try to bring audience. And don't be afraid to hustle for stage time. When I was in New York, I would hand out flyers for hours mm-hmm. and then perform to whoever showed up. Um, And it sucked. <laughs> but then you performed uh, to real people after, like, weeks of, like, performing to comedians. Um, And it... it It just helped. I mean, moving to San Francisco, I would have really sucked if I just been like, I guess I just got to hang out at this comedy club.
1: Yeah. One question that I'm curious of, because it seems so antithetical to be doing law Mm -hmm. and then also comedy. There seems like there are things that are on two very different edges of the spectrum. I feel like to be a a good comedian, you have to kind of have an analytical mind. You have to sort of be Mm -hmm. able to dissect something, understand it in a new way. Do you think that you got anything uh out of law that has helped you be a better comedian?
0: Uh no. But in 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 but the <laughs> reverse was true. I thought being a comedian helped me with law. Like I think if I'd gone to law school and then become a comedian, law school would have helped me a lot. Mm. Because it um but weirdly I think I already thought in the way that They teach in your first year at law school. Um, Not that I applied it to my law school a lot. But like, um, so in law school, they have this thing called IRAC, which is um, taking a case and distilling it into the issue at hand. The rules that have, you know, been created before, like the precedent, Mm -hmm. applying that to the issue and the conclusion you get after that analysis. And you can do that to a lot of my jokes. But a lot of those jokes I wrote before law school, one of the weirdest things has been graduating in May and being able to use my time in law school finally to make jokes about law school whereas when I was in law school, I felt like I just couldn't i was I was very angry you know mm-hmm. at having to be there and i was i was, and feeling like I just wasn't in the mix anymore like that's one of the things that is the coolest thing, but also sometimes um. Uh, maybe I don't handle it always the best way internally, but like it's really cool. I have a lot of friends from New York mm-hmm. and uh, L.A. who are like doing big things now, and they've been signed by big people, and they're like really coming up, and it's really cool. But at the same time, because I was in San Francisco for three years, I have that feeling of like, man, what could have been? And, and by the mm-hmm. way, I have a lot of friends who have not done anything in yeah. those three years, so there's no guarantee. And the friends who made it have worked their asses off mm-hmm. and made some really cool things, and they have earned what they have.
1: You want to name drop a little bit?
0: Uh. F- I'm trying to think of which ones would be like, yeah, cool man. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a people. I guess Gondelman writes for Oliver. Oh, uh, Kevin Kataoka just got a job for Hasan Minhaj. Wow. He's he's an older comedian, to be fair, but I loved hanging out with him in L.A. He mm-hmm. he really made that. Uh, have you heard of W Kamau Bell?
1: No, I haven't.
0: He had a TV show, uh, on FX in America for a while, and my friend Kevin, who I met through my friend. Uh, Hurry Kondabolu, have you heard of that Mm-mm. guy? He had a uh, documentary about Apu that got some notoriety.
1: Oh yeah, I have heard about that. Um, the documentary,
0: <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, but they were writing for the show from this, uh, W Kamau Bell, and it was this show, when it was a weekly show. It was a, it was a really inventive, interesting show, and it was still that when it moved to daily. Mm-hmm. But because they were just being, over, I, I don't know, I don't really. They didn't tell me any a lot of this. I don't want to, you know, but oh, just yeah. seeing from the outside, they just had to turn out so much more stuff yeah i think it burnt a lot of them out And i remember i had dinner with kevin uh and he was like man the ratings they're not good man and i was like i guarantee you that this show will be around for 10 years and it was canceled i believe the very next day so
1: well so you're not a lawyer and you're not a prophet i'm We've not a prophet yeah. that. so as you were watching all those people sort of begin to do those things. And it sounds like you sensed a little bit of regret, sort of taking that own leap and moving to San Francisco. Did oh yeah, you, yeah. Once you graduated, did you leave San Francisco, or did you stick around there?
0: I I left almost immediately. So oh. I graduated.
1: No love for San Francisco.
0: <laughs> I graduated in May of this uh, last year.
1: Twenty eighteen.
0: Yeah, and uh, almost immediately I moved to. So I moved to London. I moved to yeah. I moved to London in September, and I did the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in August. So yeah, I mean, from May to August, I was in San Francisco for a short time, but then yeah, I just got the hell I got the heck out of there. Hey, San Francisco uh, is an amazing scene in a lot of ways. Um, there are a lot of good comics there. There is good stage time. There is some inventiveness happening there. Uh, and I think I would have had a much higher opinion of it had I not moved from New York or from LA. Mm.
1: Or maybe if you hadn't just moved for. Law school, which it sounds like something you weren't exactly well, passionate about. But you know about. what?
0: If I had to move to law school, I probably would never have been able to afford living in San Francisco. It is such an expensive city now. Yeah,
1: that's true. So I I listened to uh, your law podcast. The mm-hmm. law is my ass. Go listen to it, guys. Oh, it's fine. <laughs> I thought it was very fun. Um,
0: it has it has moments, and Kreitz is such an interesting guy. Yeah,
1: and one of the things that was mentioned on that that kind of uh, shocked me. I think it's safe to say is. Number one, you were in England during Brexit. Mm-hmm. And number two is you said that you were you faced like harassment during that period. Yep. What happened? If you're comfortable talking about it.
0: Yeah, we just uh it was a very weird thing. Um I was so the day of Brexit was very interesting because uh I was on a sh- doing a show. I had just landed that very day. Um all the polls were like, I think it's going to be um, remain by a slight margin. Very, very slim mm-hmm. margin, but it'll be remain. And then um, as the show went on, we started getting the vote totals coming back and we were like, wait a second. Wait a second. And I remember I went up to close the first half and had a decent set, but also I had the audience's attention. So having a good set there was cool, but then everyone who went on the second half bombed because everyone stopped listening and just started staring at their phones being like, oh, my yeah. God. And, you know, I think a lot of London people felt guilt because it was raining like crazy that day. So a lot of people were like, I'm not going to go vote. We're going to win anyway. It's mm-hmm. fine. And uh, the mess Look continues. what happened. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. As far as harassment, when I was sitting at Oxford, uh, we went to some bar the night we graduated from the program. Uh, and uh, just some people started manhandling me. Yeah, fuck yeah, man. Yeah. Not the first time it happened to me, but I, you know, Oxford is a fairly liberal city, so
1: that's pretty crazy. So, were you studying at Oxford during your law school period?
0: Yes, as it was part of like an a, exchange. Yeah, it was like an thing. exchange thing.
1: And so, I'm guessing that was probably well, no, you had done Edinburgh before, but having worked in New York, L.A., now you're in the other big city. Mm-hmm. London
0: has a lot of things going for it. It's comedy scene is a very interesting one. There's a lot of stage time to be had. A lot of stage time to be had. Um, And being in Oxford was, you know, it was very much like the rest of my law school. I would do the bare minimum for law school, so I would pass, (laughs) and I would take a bus to London and perform, or a bus to Liverpool or Leeds. I did Blackpool. Uh, In fact, Blackpool, I had such a crazy time where I had the opposite of Brexit harassment. I had... A guy who liked my comedy so much, he wanted to convince me I was wrong about Brexit. And he was so sweet, and he thought I was so funny, and his answers were so terrifying.
1: (laughs) What'd he say? He
0: was just like, you've got it all wrong. Once we do Brexit, everyone's going to just start queuing up, you know, to really like... (laughs) And I was like, what? He's like, listen, man, you don't understand. We have an advantage no one else has. We invented English. (laughs) I was like, what? He's like, yeah, man, we invented the language. They're always going to need us. And I'm like, nah, man, we already have the language. Like, what do we need you guys for you now? You can't he's,
1: take it back. And he's
0: like, uh, well, um, they're going you know, to be lining up, man. They're going to be lining up. And I was like, all right, man, well. <laughs> and it was that thing where <laughs> I'm such a ham sometimes. But he was like, hey, man, you were really funny, though. And I'm like, maybe they will be lining up. <laughs> like that's, that's all it takes. Is if someone tells me I'm funny, they're like, maybe their opinions are valid. Yeah,
1: if I they mean, like me, they yeah. have to be right about everything. Right. So, uh, so after you graduate from law school, hallelujah, finally <laughs> sure. you get the fuck out of San Francisco, head up to London, and uh, now. What, six, seven months later, you're here in Amsterdam?
0: Yeah, so what had happened was is i had been doing Edinburgh every year. That was the one thing that I was like, save up your money. Uh uh oh one of the things I didn't mention was one of the good things about being in San Francisco, other than building your own stage time for these organizations, where I was also getting a lot of corporate gigs. There's just so nice. many corporations there. Yeah. And that was often paying for these fundraisers. So like I would perform at let's say like uh HP mm-hmm. and then they would pay me they would pay me so much money. <laughs> <laughs> and then I would just funnel that money into these organizations. you're just
1: a comedic Robin Hood taken from the rich to give to the poor and the needy
0: and it was the only way you could live with yourself.
1: <laughs> you know what I mean?
0: Like it was like I need to do this because I need to assuage my own conscience about having yeah. left New York and l a okay uh, but it was fun. it was cool and then i would i would I wouldn't donate all the money. I would say some of it, and then I would use it to fly to Edinburgh and do these hour shows there. Mm-hmm. and I would just make a lot of friends there. I mean. One of the things I've always been lucky is that a lot of comedians find me funny, and I made a lot of friends at Edinburgh. Uh, one of them, the super talented Dan who who is just like amazing uh, director, writer, editor, in addition to being a, a very talented stand-up. We became really good friends. We started doing shows together, uh, and he got a show commissioned by Comedy Central, mm. and sort of I flew over to write for it.
1: Flew over where to to London to London A- after okay. uh,
0: after law school to write for it.
1: And I think I've heard you tell this joke about what happened with that show. Oh, yeah. uh, was it canceled?
0: Ye- well, technically, I believe we're on hiatus, but yes, it was canceled. Okay. And um, uh, but you know, that's one of the cool things about just being in the mix. You know, that was what was so lovely about being in London again. Is why I'll always love it. Is like it felt nice to be in the mix again was, okay, that show, I think the executives didn't know what to do with it.
1: What kind of show was it? It
0: was a sketch show. Mm -hmm. It was specifically about dating.
1: Were you on it or just Just a writer? Uh, Mm -hmm. And I was
0: really just, I just did mostly punch-up on that one. But then, they liked my punch-up, so then when we, our, our friend... Uh I probably don't think I'm allowed to it was a, a decent sized british comic
1: a very important person <laughs> no but
0: <laughs> but a nice guy and uh, a guy who got a chance to have a, a TV show also on Comedy central i believe uh for like a daily show type show mm. you got the right on that uh and that paid uh uh decent for the pilot and then we were doing more gigs and I was um I had a work visa for the first time, and I was getting to travel all around England and do these gigs that were enough to pay my rent, and I would fly out to like Malta and stuff. It was such a cool wow. time. Wow. Uh, Malta, I flew out and to Malaga. And this is last fall? Yeah, this That's... is just uh, a couple months ago. Wow. And it was the first time in my life where I was just making money from only doing comedy. Mm-hmm. And the fact that I was able to live was such an ego boost.
1: <laughs> How did that feel like? Just like such gratification? or
0: it just it, It's just one of those things of like, uh, thank God. You know what I mean? It's just, <laughs> it's just a sigh of relief. But it's also like, you know, in order to make that, you have to just, you're sending emails to people constantly. Hey, am I available from here? Am I able to do this? Um, It just felt so nice. and But I, I started taking an improv class there because I'd been doing improv the whole time as well. I've been doing stand-up for 10 years. Yeah, improv we haven't seven.
1: mentioned that. I mean, Yes, you, you work at Boom Chicago, so obviously. When when did you start doing improv? You said it was Second City in New York?
0: Uh, UCB somewhere? in New York.
1: UCB in New York.
0: Uh, yeah. was, I started there seven seven years ago now.
1: Mm-hmm. During your time doing stand-up mm-hmm. there.
0: I thought it would make me a better stand-up. Did it? Uh, it did. It's funny. I thought it would make me a more comfortable stand-up on stage. And it did to an extent, but I think it made me a better writer more than anything.
1: Really? How so?
0: Because, you know, the whole rule of improv is yes and. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when you're writing, having that freedom to yes and yourself and sort of keep asking if this is true, what else is true, allows you to explore more avenues quicker. Mm-hmm. And that was just invaluable. I also just got to meet cool people. Like the the thing about UCB really is a lot like a frat, you know, and I would never join a frat in college. I thought I thought that was so gross. But there was something about. man, I'm just throwing money into this pit of improv classes. But I'm meeting a lot of cool people at these improv classes. And they're showing me all these other shows and this different world from the Mm -hmm. stand-up. When I moved to New York, I was doing a lot of club spots uh, or club open mics. And I was doing the alt scene a little bit. And I was really enjoying the comics there. But the alt scene can be a lot more brutal to newcomers than the club scene zero laughs they don't know you they're not gonna laugh
1: just because it's that sort of camaraderie that you have to have then? yeah it's
0: it's almost like a rite of passage mm-hmm. even, sometimes even they'll know you and they'll just be like we're not oh laughing. they'll just be assholes
1: cool. yeah just, it, it just
0: is what it is and it just takes a while to get to the point where everyone is listening because they want to listen and uh it it was so magical meeting all these like new alt people who showed me these other alt rooms I didn't know about. And and the improv community is so different from the stand-up community. They kind of hate each other. That's less true now. That's the thing, now. yeah. That's much less true now than it was when I first started. I think
1: they overlap a lot more now. I think yes. that everyone who wants to be a stand-up comedian ends up at some point taking improv classes.
0: I think especially in Europe. In the States, mm-hmm. it's sort of changing when people are doing both more often. When I started, I mean, it was so different. When I started, the idea of taking a comedy class especially for stand-up, was just like you would get made fun of yeah, endlessly. So I just never even considered it.
1: There's comedy classes here like teach you stand-up. I, I do make fun of people who do that, but yeah. that's just because I'm a dick. But I think for improv, that's not really something you can even teach yourself. I agree. Though, I, I think there's really. a, like
0: I'll never, you know, I meet young comics here sometimes and I'll help them out with stand-up. And I would just, I would never charge for that. Mm-hmm. Because I think that's just part of being in the community. Yeah,
1: you're just such a good guy, Sid. <laughs> okay.
0: Uh, tell tell more people. Uh, <laughs> but improv, I think it's fair to charge. I've coached mm-hmm. and charged for improv because I think that that's more of learning about how to acquiesce to the team dynamic.
1: So, you, so you're doing, you're just taking classes there at UCB or were you ever part of a, uh, a performance team?
0: I, I joined indie teams. I... I never auditioned for a Herald team, but I think I could have, and I think I would have had a decent chance. Mm-hmm. That sounds very weird to say. But uh, there's this thing called advanced study, mm-hmm. and it's like a big deal to get into. Or it's not actually a big deal to get into. It feels like a big deal to get into when you're in that world.
1: Yeah, I watched a documentary about uh, UCB and sort of the mm-hmm. Herald auditions and everything. Really? Yeah, it's on YouTube. Oh my it's God. uh It's so separate from anything that stand-up really has. Like, there's comedy competitions based mm-hmm. around standup, but to have just sort of this whole hierarchy based around, uh, improv, this, this form of comedy, it just seems in- insane.
0: Oh me. yeah. I, I mean, again, like I think I had a chance of making a Herald team, not because I am some amazing improviser. I am a decent improviser. And I think <laughs> not to sound weird, but it, uh, uh, I am Brown And UCB was getting criticized pretty heavily uh, when I was there for not being uh, diverse enough. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think I would have had a good chance of making a team as a result. Yeah, diversity hire. Um, Well, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, I can understand if I'm equally as funny as another guy. In the past, they will pick the guy that they feel more comfortable with because they understand him better. Mm -hmm. Because they have some shared experience or whatever. That leads to a lot of white guys hiring white guys. Yeah. Yeah. so, to me, there's no, really no difference than like oh, they're high it as long as the first part is true where mm-hmm. I'm just as good as this guy on stage, yeah, I don't really mind getting the uh, leg up because of uh Amda Brown guy
1: that does seem to be changing though I feel like there's not so much of that pressure to or that sort of a standard of hiring someone who looks like you because mm-hmm. they have similar experiences now it's like we have to hire someone who's different or else the internet will burn us to the ground. There's a little bit of, I mean, it's changing. For good, sometimes, mm-hmm. I mean, I've noticed that in shows that I and people I know have gotten hired for, the intention might not be the best, but the result, a.k.a. being a more diverse yes. comedy scene, is the ideal.
0: Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, there's still a ways to go. There still needs to be. So, you know, a lot of times it'll happen is the in a writer's room, the diversity hire uh, is not paid out of the show's budget. Really? So, to sort of really incentivize hiring? Mm -hmm. So, but like, it's essentially a diversity scholarship for the first year. And if they are to keep them on the second year, then they are certainly part of the show's budget. Mm -hmm. And so they have to really prove themselves in that first year. Whereas, uh, which is good and bad, you know, if they prove themselves, great. But if the Mm -hmm. show was sort of only taking them because of the diversity hire, it's likely they never never really had a chance to prove themselves. So they're gone after a year. And so it's just another way that the system is slow to change, but it is at least mm-hmm. on the right path. Um, to me, I meet a lot of people in comedy who are like, oh, I, you know, I feel guilty. I just got booked. And I, I'm i worried it's like because I'm a girl, or I'm worried it's because I'm black or I'm brown mm-hmm. or whatever. Uh, and my thing is like, who cares, man?
1: You're getting stage time. Go like, kill it. Go for it. Go, yeah.
0: go to that stage and kill it. And mm-hmm. co- comedy has never been the meritocracy we like to think of it as. No. It has always been more of a meritocracy than a lot of other facets of society. But at the end of the day, people get booked for all kinds of dumb reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe you did get uh, stage on because you're Indian, but the other guy got stage on because he drank with the guy. So, yeah. like, who cares? <laughs> like, go be funny. And as long as you go on stage and be funny, that should mm-hmm. be all that matters.
1: Yeah, and I mean, you've made it this far, so it seems like that's mattering pretty much for you. <laughs> so, yeah. So, again, I'm still trying to figure out this, this journey you've gone on from mm. London a couple months ago to here working at Boom Chicago. What was the catalyst for that?
0: So the show got canceled or it was looking like it was likely to get canceled. And I had done one improv jam, uh, which is an open mic mm-hmm. with this guy, Mike O.T., who, uh, you know, it's so interesting. Um, Mike O.T. is this guy who has created his own show called Borderline. It's on Netflix. I've heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. He is such a talented, funny guy. And then you would go to this jam, and it would be almost empty. And in New York and in L.A., you'd be like, what are you talking about? If someone like that is hosting a free comedy show that can let you perform in front of them, it's going to be packed, period. Yeah. And in London, it would often be fairly empty. And I went there once, and off of one improv jam he asked me to audition for boom chicago uh and then the story they told me was i got it off of that one audition but then they were like wait but who is this guy
1: yeah
0: (laughs) and then they were like oh do we know like does he have like a work feast? like we just didn't know anything about me yeah they didn't even know i had done ucb they they literally had just picked me off of one open mic and one audition uh, so they just like they were like let's get to know him first. So
1: did you fly to Amsterdam to do the audition? Or?
0: No, no, it was in London. They mm-hmm. went to London. Uh, Michael T runs a school there called the Free Association,
1: which is what Boom Chicago is sort of based around, is the teachings mm-hmm. of them.
0: Um, and those were taken from Second City, more or less. And uh, I just got lucky. I mean, uh, you know, comedy really is all about trying to give yourselves as many chances as possible to get
1: lucky. Let's talk about Amsterdam now. Because when I was asking people, what questions should I ask Sid today? They were mostly saying, like, what do you think about the Amsterdam scene? Do you like Amsterdam? Are you happy
0: here? Oh, my God. I can't wait to find out who you asked.
1: Oh, yeah. I'll afterwards. Uh, (laughs) So it's... I, I wonder because... It sounds like you were doing pretty well back in London, Mm -hmm. besides the show going on hiatus. Fingers crossed. (laughs) It's canceled. Um, (laughs) It seems like you were making a steady income from that. Did you have any hesitancy just sort of giving that up and moving here to the Netherlands? So,
0: you know, had the show been commissioned for a full season instead of the pilots, Mm -hmm. um, I would have made a decent salary from that. What ended up happening was I would get paid on a, like, oh, you wrote on this episode. Here's this fee for that. And the fee would be fine, but it'd be for one episode. And then I would supplement that by just doing a bunch of stand-up, by, like, going to these small towns Mm -hmm. and then getting paid whatever to do an hour or 30 minutes, sometimes 20, and all of it adding up. What was so enticing about Boom is, like, they're so cool. They, like, pay you. It's a steady source of income. You know where it's Mm -hmm. coming from? You know what's coming every month? And Boom has been very nice about being flexible, about being like, and then once you've been here four months, you can start touring more as well. Nice. So on top of that, being like, I can go to perform at these places. I think what's so cool about performing in Europe right now, uh, it's a challenge, but I think it's cool, is that so many people in Europe have access to stand-up comedy for the very first time. And it, uh, uh, it... It's an opportunity to perform to people who love stand-up comedy, who now have Netflix and YouTube, so they're not, like, 15 years behind like mm-hmm. they used to be. Um, they have access to Bill Burr and all that stuff. And they have m- money now. There's all this. There's a new middle class right now in Europe that wants entertainment and they want stand-up comedy. And no one in their country has done it for long enough for mm-hmm. there to be, like, 52 comedians to take up all the weekends.
1: So you're enjoying working at Boom, then? it's. It sounds like... Yeah, it's
0: been such an interesting challenge because Boom is the first time in my life where I'm not doing stand-up every day or, you know, at the bare minimum five to six times a week. Mm -hmm. Which still feels so weird because in New York it was minimum 15 times a week. So it's such a weird... Yeah, that was your life. Um, Boom is so much more sketch and improv oriented. I really love getting to keep doing sketches. I got to write for the TV thing and and now I'm writing for Boom. So that's fun. Mm -hmm. It is still different though because... When you're writing for a TV thing, even though it's going out to so many more people, you're allowed to have a few more jokes for the comedians in the room.
1: Do you think you have a little more control over that process then when it was a show versus doing the live performances? Mm, I think
0: that is um, um, an anomaly, though. I think I was very lucky that, you know, the the sketch show in the UK had two writers uh, 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 or two head writers, I should Mm. say. And then uh, I got to help out. So the, both of them were already my friends. Both of them were already open to my ideas. And then the executives would come in later and deal with them. Whereas at mm-hmm. Boom, I am doing it, and like the director knows me. You know what I mean? Like I, he has my number. Like, yeah. The owner of Boom has my number, so they can come to me directly, and I'll be like, oh, "Okay, I guess mm-hmm. I have to change that for the Amsterdam audience." Which has been a fun challenge, but I think it does it does push you to more like broad jokes.
1: Yeah, because you are dealing with something that's more international. Mm-hmm. I uh, I just did an interview with Michaela Birch uh, last week, and we were talking about the challenges that come from having to perform English comedy from an American perspective to an international audience. Mm-hmm. Because you don't have that common lexicon that you have when you're performing in America. 100%. Where you know the same pop figures, you know the same political developments mm-hmm. that are happening. So if, if you're trying to do those same jokes here... You either have to set it up too much that it's not funny uh, or you just you, you can't make that joke anymore because people just simply don't have that same kind of mutual understanding.
0: So in January, uh, I got to do like a mini tour before I joined Boom. So I got to go back to San Francisco, back to New York uh, and L.A. And I got to do my first hour in New York. Nice. And... Uh, It was at uh, under St. Mark's Theater, and it was just like, oh, my God. So much fun to perform an hour to an audience that understood all of my references. Mm -hmm. Um, Performing in London and Amsterdam, there is that thing of, like, you have to figure out how to connect to this audience in a way that doesn't ignore the fact that you don't have a shared experience the way their home country comics do.
1: Yeah, and it's kind of, I mean... It's difficult. I kind of think it's a, it's a good challenge to sort of figure out what can work to the most people possible. At mm-hmm. the same time, it's not as fun, you know. Yeah. I have to, like, go to Dutch people before I perform. like, do you know who this is? And they'll be like, <laughs> no. Fuck. But I, I think that's interesting. It sounds, it sounds to me, as the expert in the room on you, that uh, <laughs> it seems like your heart kind of lies a bit more with stand-up. Is is that correct? Do you see yourself more as a, a stand up comedian than you do an improviser?
0: Yeah, I very much. I mean, I see myself as a stand up comedian before I see myself as a guy with a law degree. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes I see myself as a comedian, stand up, before I see myself as you know Indian. Uh, it's just how I view the world, and you know one of the good things about performing internationally is you get to be more introspective. Because maybe they didn't see this TV show or movie, mm-hmm. but they'll understand that you're talking about yourself.
1: Yeah, the the premise is still there. The theme right. is still there, even exactly. without the reference. Exactly. So, again, I I have to ask. The viewers are dying to know. <laughs> what do you think of the Amsterdam stand-up scene? As an outsider, the only outsider I've had on the show so far, mm-hmm. what's, what's your view on it? And you can be brutal. We're counting on it.
0: <laughs> well, I don't. So I I think the thing is, because I am at Boom from Wednesday to Sunday, I don't really get to see a lot of the Amsterdam scene. Mm -hmm. Uh, When my friends from London come over to perform at Tumblr, I can go watch them on a Sunday. Nice, yeah. Um, Otherwise, it's sort of based on Mondays and Tuesdays. So I don't really have a fair analysis of Amsterdam. What I will say is that um, it seems like the kind of country or Amsterdam's the city, obviously, but the Netherlands seems like to have a country that um, its comedy scene is about to take off.
1: That's what I've been hearing from a lot of people.
0: Uh, it's sort of a weird thing because you're like, I don't know if that's something that people have been saying for 15 years and I'm just the latest to mm-hmm. say that, but there's a thing of there's a lot of tourists here, there's a lot of expats here, uh, there's a lot of uh, um, places that you can perform, that have not been utilized as performance spaces yet. And there aren't that many comedians here.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, So, you know, the comedians who are here have a great opportunity to build as much stage time as possible. And even if it's just like these random rooms that just get 20, 25 people a night, you can slowly build just an amazing scene. And I think all the pieces are there. From what I have seen, it is still in the early stages of that.
1: Yeah, I think so, too. I think that, I mean, just in the past week, I've heard of, like, three new shows Mm -hmm. starting. So it definitely is uh, snowballing a bit, at least in the English scene. I don't know what's happening in the Dutch scene. I I don't know what they're saying. Can't tell you. But, yeah, so, I mean, going full circle back, I don't think that Amsterdam is the worst place to start comedy. Sure, It's definitely not New York. It's definitely not London or L.A. But, you know, I think just the fact that we have Boom Chicago here and we have people like you performing is sort of a sign that there's that potential that there is the the ability to have these sort of stages that can mm-hmm. draw these kind of acts and people will come and see it
0: but you know? that being said the moment you feel like you have 10 minutes of material that you really like that you can think you can do anywhere and you have performed at most of the stages in Amsterdam people should leave and go to London yeah london offers so many more tv opportunities they offer so many more opportunities to get an international reach. And there are better comics in London than there are in Amsterdam. There are better comics in New York than there are in London. And you get better. Like, here's the thing. The-, the thing that New York always had, that L.A. had less of, but had, and London and San Francisco occasionally had, but never as not nearly as much as L.A., and L.A. had not much less than New York, is you go to a show or even an open mic, In New York, either, for sure. And there's 20 comics on for this open mic, or there's 15 comics on for this open mic. One of them is going to have a joke so good that it puts the fear of God into you of, like, that's stand-up. What Mm -hmm. am I doing? Why do I belong here? I need to get better because I need to have a joke that good. Because if I don't, what am I doing? And then... You know, you sink or you swim. And a lot of times you write a joke that good. And then you see someone else who has an even better joke. And you're like, how do I get that good? And it forces you to progress quickly. Um, A place that has easy access to 10, 15 minutes is a great way to learn how to do 10, 15 minutes. But it is also a place that if you're not being pushed to write better and better jokes, you will fall into the trap of writing jokes Mm -hmm. that are broad and they are easy.
1: Wow, so the anxiety never does end, does it? No, it doesn't. Oh, great. Well, <laughs> this has been fun. I want to talk about one last thing. Um, we spoke a little in the elevator about it. It's your new show at Boom that you're working oh, on. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, the future is here, and it's slightly annoying. Yeah, What's up with that? Love the <laughs> title.
0: Well, it's, um, it's a show. It's, it's basically a sketch show with a little bit of improv. I, I, yeah, you know, I think for the first time in Boom, it feels like a show with more sketch than improv, mm. but also I've never seen any other shows at Boom, so I've really <laughs> just done the one we were doing before this and now this one. Um, And uh, it's we've got a new thing in it, which is that we had these tech companies come up to us with these AI that they think couldn't do comedy, and it was up to us to figure out ways to... Find platforms for that AI to do comedy with us. So the fun thing about this show is that we're going to have sketches that are just us. We're going to have improv that is just us, but we're also going to um, have these improvising AI on stage with us and sort of force us to adapt to like improvising with essentially a robot.
1: Will the will the robot be responding to what you're saying? Yes. Then, so it will do voice analysis. Mm-hmm turn it into text, and respond to it. Yes. How does it work so far?
0: You know, it's it's, it's so interesting. Uh, the first time we heard it, I was like, okay, cool, get this out of the show. <laughs> this is terrible. Um, and then we are now on, like, our fifth, like, robot 5.0, I guess, AI uh-huh. 5.0. And it has definitely gotten better and better to the point where you're like, okay, this what, we can work with this. Like, ultimately... If the robot was an amazing improviser, I'd probably feel too threatened to be in a show with it. Um, (laughs) No, but if it was an amazing improviser, I don't think there's that much interesting with that. Mm -hmm. Oh, he's an amazing improviser? Well, so is the cast. So, like, okay. Yeah,
1: the gimmick is that it's supposed to be sort of out of place in that comedy environment.
0: And it just has to be out of place enough where it's not, like, you know, destroying scenes. Mm -hmm. It's hindering scenes. And can you... Find ways around that. It's basically forcing improvisers to be better. You're basically watching these improvisers now on an even crazier high wire act. And that's compelling. And that is fun yeah. to watch. And I think that's what's going to make this show uh, a really fun one.
1: Any other shows to plug?
0: Uh, well, I, I just registered my Edinburgh Fringe show. So if anyone's Congrats. available in August. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can watch my show American Refugee. Basically, the the idea of the show was I got to volunteer at the Center for Gender and Refugee Studies, raise some money for them. And in January, uh, they beat Donald Trump in court, which is so cool. Uh, I consider myself to be a very liberal person, and I think a lot of people like to say things like, oh, the world is filled with hate, and that's the problem. Whereas I think the real problem is that we're bad at hate. I think hate's very useful. We just need to know how to learn to use it, so let me teach you how to hate. And using my experiences uh, in the refugee world, uh, I was weirdly the head of the homeless legal services in San Francisco for a while. So cool. <laughs> I have that going for me. Um, <laughs> but, you know, when you when you, when you you get to volunteer or work in those environments, you see that, like, there's so much where these people are being screwed over. So, you know, a lot of times we preach compassion for those people, and that mm-hmm. is a very valuable. You should feel compassion for the people being screwed over. But I think it's time to start feeling anger and hatred for the people screwing them over and you can't
1: just keep turning the other cheek
0: you cannot just keep turning the other cheek the idea that hate is destructive is foolish it often just allows people to get away with doing it over Mm -hmm. and over and over again i think that's what's going to make this show fun is telling people teaching people how to hate
1: it's it's strange because you seem like such an unhateful person and yet you just got this ball of rage inside <laughs> oh, yeah. you, buddy.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of stand-ups have that, though. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. Seifel's an angry guy. Yeah. Uh, Brian Regan's an angry guy. I mean, <laughs> if you have an entire bit about, like, scissors or, or like, whatever, <laughs> like, airplane food, it's because it really annoys you enough to you so just that You just see
1: injustice it. everywhere yeah. at that point. That's exactly yeah. what it is. Yeah, yeah. Where can people watch that?
0: Uh, so they can watch it at the attic in the Counting House in mm. uh, Edinburgh, Scotland. From August 1st to the 25th. Uh, I'm very excited about it.
1: Oh, are you doing any shows in Amsterdam? I'm sure.
0: Just come to Boom. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We'll see you. Yeah. The fun thing is, so this show debuts, the 10 days after that, me and Tyler are going to start doing stand-up at Boom regularly. The hope is, you come watch a Boom show, you pay for a Boom show, after the show, you stick around, and you can watch me and Tyler do, like, probably, like... 40 minutes combined probably Mm -hmm. 35 minutes combined free show uh, and that way we can keep doing stand up every day thanks
1: so much for coming on yeah of course this was great yeah getting an outsider inside (laughs) I don't know what that means probably gonna cut it Um, (laughs) thank you guys for listening and uh, tune in next week for another episode of Welcome to the Stage Thank